you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Home Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. May Martinez. Governor Newsom has proposed expanding the state's pandemic relief package to include new payments to middle-class families and also some major rent relief. We'll break down all the details. Plus, after over a year of restrictions, LA County is nearly wide open. So how do we stay that way? And when should you expect getting that booster shot? We'll have an expert with all the answers. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us. Coming up. Our grandchildren are going to want to know how did the life of a nurse change or how did a grocery store clerk go through their everyday job? A new bill hopes to hire out-of-work writers to pen stories about the pandemic, much like FDR's Works Progress Administration did back in the 1930s. A federal writer's project for the 21st century. We're going to talk about that just ahead. But first, Governor Gavin Newsom unveiled a $100 billion economic recovery plan today. It includes $600 stimulus checks going out to two-thirds of all Californians and $5 billion bucks toward rental relief. We are now in a position to roll out a hundred plus billion dollar comeback plan in the state of California. And the first announcement in that plan we're announcing today, and that's immediate relief to millions and millions of taxpayers, millions and millions of Californians. Here to discuss the governor's California comeback plan is Guy Marzarati, politics and government reporter for KQAD. Guy, welcome back to Take Two. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Now, okay, first, let's start with uh, breaking down what's in the recovery package. We just mentioned stimulus checks and rent relief. Uh, how's Governor Newsom planning to delegate the funds? What are the big priorities for him? Well, the big piece of this, as you said, is checks directly sent to taxpayers. If you remember earlier this year, Newsom signed off on $600 checks to taxpayers making less than $30,000 a year. He's now expanding that or hopes to in this upcoming state budget to those making up to $75,000 a year. So it's $600 checks to individuals and then an extra $500 payment for households with children. And then on top of that, there's rent relief. He's adding billions of dollars uh, in relief for renters and residents who have fallen behind on their utility bills, whether that's electric, water, gas, that kind of thing. When it comes to the $600 payments guy, who exactly is eligible and and how is this going to be different from uh, the previous stimulus payments? Right. So he's really targeting, as, as Newsom kind of characterized it today, uh, to the middle class. The, you know, the first uh, round of payments that were made by the state earlier this year really targeted those who were eligible for the earned income tax credit. So taxpayers making you know, less than $30,000 a year. This is really aimed at the middle class, those making up to $75,000. And it's a result of, of just the enormous tax windfall that the state has had in the last year. Newsom said a $75 billion budget surplus 
which A, when you think about it, it's incredible where state lawmakers were last year at this exact time staring down a $54 billion shortfall as they were making uh, the state's spending plan. Fast forward a year later from $54 billion in the red to now a $75 billion surplus. It just speaks to the, you know, the ways in which California's progressive tax code really brought in a lot of money from the state's highest earners. And we're talking about tripling California's previous investment, right? That's right. And and on top of all of this, uh, there's the, you know, roughly $25, $26 billion coming from the federal government as part of uh, the relief plan that President Joe Biden and congressional Democrats worked out. So when you add it all together, that's where Newsom gets this number of, you know, more than $100 billion uh, in his quote unquote comeback plan, which is interesting because it is a, the state budget process. The governor largely drives that. Yeah. But this will all have to get signed off by uh, the legislature. But it was interesting today at the press conference in Oakland where the governor unveiled this legislative leaders were by his side. So I think as as you're seeing this recall campaign against Newsom, there is kind of a closing the ranks among the state's top Democrats, kind of all getting behind this plan together. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty on the rental relief, uh, we can talk about money all we want, Guy. When are people going to see the money? So this will uh, go out as part of the state's uh, tax process. It's really only for people who are filing uh, for taxes. But unlike a lot of the federal relief that you've seen, there's not requirements about immigration status, for example. So if you're you know, an undocumented immigrant in California who's filing taxes, you too would be eligible for these funds. Um, and you know, Newsom is hoping to, to get these out uh, sooner rather than later, but it will have to wait for final approval in the state budget, which likely will be sealed uh, in the first couple of weeks of June. All right. So dotted I's and cross T's, all that kind of stuff. Um, Guy, OK, so the rental relief uh, for Californians directly impacted by the pandemic. What are the details on that? So this is building on, again, an earlier investment that uh, Newsom and the legislature signed off on uh, at, in the first couple months of the year. This is, that was you know roughly $2.6 billion to pay back rent. This is kind of doubling that. Um, to pay, you know, all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic if, if renters are falling behind. On top of that, $2 billion for overdue utility bills. So if you fell behind on your gas or electricity payment, there's money in there for you as well. We're talking to KQED politics and government reporter Guy Marzarati about Governor Gavin Newsom's economic recovery plan. At the announcement today, uh, Newsom talked about the GAN limit. Uh, That's a 1979 constitutional amendment that requires tax rebates when tax uh, state revenues, excuse me, exceed a spending limit. Guy, explain how this GAN limit applies here. And, And are these cash payments a result of this law? Right. So, you know, the number crunchers uh, in Sacramento have have added up how much money the state is coming back in and basically estimate that California will be about 16 billion dollars above that so-called GAN limit. So that 16 billion dollars, half of it theoretically would have to be returned to the taxpayers. Now, the GAN limit uh, would not directly be hit in this year's budget, as Newsom described it. So he wasn't actually required to act immediately on this. But as, as you know, as he described it, he's choosing to do these tax rebates now in anticipation that the state would run up against this GAN limit because so much tax revenue is coming into the state. Let's hear Governor Newsom, uh, his response to whether the GAN limit guided this allocation. This is uh, above and beyond the statutory requirement. This is not the reason we're moving forward with this announcement. We're building on the announcement of a number of months ago. So it sounds, Guy, that he's making it very clear that all of this is part of a process. Right. I think the point he wants to make is, you know, this is I'm not just required to do this. I'm, you know, taking the initiative and doing this. There is, you know, some kind of uh, budget wonkiness in there on when actual uh, threshold would be hit where he'd be required to do this by law. Um, It's clear that he wants to get ahead of this because, you know, as we may talk about, he is facing a recall campaign. And uh, a plan to send direct checks to voters uh, is usually a political winner. We kind of touched on it earlier, Guy, about uh, the, uh, the the surplus and the shortfall. So let's let's get into that a little bit more because these investments are in part uh, made possible by a projected $75.7 billion surplus in addition to federal funds. Um, wondering how we got here. Can you explain that? Because Newsom mentioned this time last year that there was a $54 billion projected shortfall. So how did all this swing as, as much as it has? Right. This is really just a result of the state's uh, progressive tax code, right? We have some of the highest rates um, towards the top of the income scale and on capital gains. So 
while yes, this economy and the state's economy went through a recession, you saw that in unemployment numbers, the top earners in the state had a great 2020. There was you know, a lot of money uh, brought in by high earners. In addition to huge uh, gains in the stock market by some California tech companies, you add that all up and you get this huge windfall just a year, as I mentioned, after lawmakers were thinking, wow, we're really going to be dealing with some some real deficits. So it's fair to say that considering that we all relied so highly and so much on tech this past year, Guy, that uh, tech had this boom as a result? Yeah, this is exactly. And this is the progressive tax system working um, as intended. I should add, though, long term, this doesn't really uh, it's not all rosy for California's budget long term. There's still a projected deficit yeah. in the coming fiscal years. And I think that's why you're seeing these proposals Newsom make are all one-time expenditures. Newsom's office has billed this plan as, quote, the biggest economic recovery package in California's history. Uh, Guy, put it in perspective for us. How, how unprecedented is this package? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly an accurate assessment. And just the, you know, the size of the surplus itself, um, $75 billion, as we mentioned, and that doesn't even include all the federal money that's coming into the state. Um, so, you know, Newsom and the legislature have an abundance of cash uh, to deal with. And it'll be interesting beyond this plan for direct cash payments, how else they decide to spend this uh, in the budget agreement. Now, here's uh, the jaded journalist coming out, Guy. We know that Governor Newsom is facing a recall campaign. How might that uh, little piece of the puzzle play into all of this? Right. Well, you're already hearing, uh, I'd say, two responses from Republicans, um, you know, a few of whom are running to replace Newsom in this recall election. One, they say, you know, these tax cuts should be permanent, uh, that, you know, this shouldn't just be a one time thing. I think Newsom would reply, this is the system working as designed. You're taking from the top earners, redistributing it. The second line that we're hearing from Republicans today is that this kind of action would never have happened without a recall campaign staring Newsom down later this year. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you can imagine a world in which Newsom wasn't facing the election of his life in six months. Maybe mm -hmm. this $75 billion falling into his lap would be moved towards something like addressing homelessness or something more long-term, supportive housing. Um, these stimulus checks are ultimately going to go to three out of every four Californians. I think that's a lot more concrete action for the voters of the state. Yeah, the cynic would say that uh, Newsom um, maybe is courting middle class voters with this middle class stimulus package. Right. And I would say maybe taking a page out of what we've seen happen uh, in Congress, not just under uh, President Biden, but dating back to last year where you've seen a trend of direct payments going out you know, more emphasis being placed on, look, let's get money to people and let them decide what they want to do with it. And I think that's something you heard exactly that from the governor today. One more thing, uh, Guy, we've seen a few cycles of state and federal stimulus payments go out since the pandemic. Any idea how actually helpful they are to individual households and how effective they actually lift up the economy? You know, that's a great question. I think as far as the payments that have gone out to California, it's probably too soon to say what direct impact they've made. Um, these are for, you know, recent filings and this program uh, announced today, you know, will not take effect for a few months. So I think to be seen. That's Guy Marzarati, politics and government reporter for KQED. Guy, thank you very much. Thanks so much. It's been just over 14 months since a state of emergency was declared in California over the coronavirus. In between then and now, there have been lockdowns and mandates, along with a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. But now, L.A. County is almost wide open. And the big question is, how do we stay that way for good? Also, another question is, when should you plan on getting that booster shot? Well, we've got an expert with all the answers when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. The journalists in the LAist newsroom work for you. I'm LAist higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is it's extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism.
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. It definitely feels like life is returning to some sort of normal. Things are opening up uh, back all over L.A. County, yet the virus is still out there. And this weekend, after a drastic decline, COVID-19 cases and deaths ticked up a little bit, just slightly. The big task now, though, is to vaccinate more people since only about 40 percent of people 16 and over are fully inoculated here. Here to discuss this and more, we bring back Paula Cannon, virologist with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Professor, welcome back. Hey, uh, good to be back. Good to have you back. Now, okay, L.A. County is in the yellow tier. So some cities such as uh, Burbank, where I live, they're adjusting to guidance on masks. What's the general rule when it comes to wearing a mask when a county is in the yellow tier? Okay, sure. So the L.A. County guidelines about masks pretty much follow the CDC guidelines, which say that now you don't need masks outdoors if you're fully vaccinated, which is two weeks after your last dose. If you're either alone, you know, with your household or with a small group of people who are also fully vaccinated. But they do still recommend that you wear masks if you're outdoors at a crowded event, you know, such as a sporting event where you can't really, you know, stay distance from people. What about like a farmer's market type situation that technically is outdoors, but it's also or it can be crowded? Yeah, I think that would probably fall under the, you know, you're going to be crowded, you should wear a mask. And of course, you know, it's okay to keep wearing a mask, even if technically you don't have to, because it's a sign of being respectful of others who may not be vaccinated themselves and may not know that you're vaccinated. So it just, you know, it's a nice thing to do for your neighbors at that farmer's market. I think I might have told you this before. I'm planning on wearing a mask pretty much permanently. (laughs) Even even if there is no mask made, I just don't want to run into someone's sniffles or someone sneezes and I walk around a corner and all of a sudden I'm in that path. You know what I mean? I, I just don't <laughs> want to deal with that anymore. I've always wanted to, but I've always felt embarrassed to, to wear one. Yeah, we've been given permission now to wear, ma- yeah. to wear masks when it makes sense. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not going to look weird, I think, going forward, <laughs> I think, for most people at least. Um, what about indoors, uh, Professor? Yeah, so indoors, you still need to wear a mask if you're in a workplace or if you're visiting, a, you know, a business, especially unless it's, you know, specifically okay not to wear a mask, such as eating indoors at a restaurant. And again, I, I think about if you're going to visit friends in a home, you know, just your checklist should be, are people also fully vaccinated? Or is there anybody there who's not vaccinated, especially if they are a high risk individual or they live with someone who's high risk? That, that's the sort of things that would go into my calculation there. I'm also wondering then about families. Uh, my wife and I are vaccinated. Our grandkids are not uh, vaccinated yet. Um, if vaccinated parents or grandparents are out and about with their kids, I mean, what do you advise uh, in regards to masks? Yeah, so this is kind of the nuance, isn't it? I mean, the guidelines would say you don't need to wear masks outdoors. You're basically all in the same household. You and your wife are fully vaccinated and the kids are at very low risk. Um, and so that's good news. You know, the, the risk to the kids is low and the, risks of, the risk of the kids infecting you guys is also very small. So it's this kind of two-way assessment, but I think you can feel very comfortable doing that. No, no masks are needed. This past Saturday, Professor, um, my wife and I took our grandkids to Huntington, uh, all mm-hmm. the gardens, all the beautiful gardens, right? We were walking through the rose garden and someone actually stopped to smell the roses. But she pulled down her mask and <laughs> let out three straight sneezes. It was funny and it wasn't all at the same time, if you can understand like how I felt in the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a weird one. Um, White House uh, Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci offered some thoughts on masks on Meet the Press this weekend. Now, for those who missed that, what did he say, uh, and Professor, and and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so Dr. Fauci, I I was actually, I saw that, and I was quite struck by his sort of optimism. And he was also talking about what a great job masks have done, not just at stopping COVID, but at stopping flu and, hey, maybe seasonal allergies. Um, And so he was talking about how it may be that going forward, the CDC recommends, doesn't impose, but recommends that people think about wearing masks during floods uh, in flu season, you know, like um, December to February. And I can't see that being mandated, but I don't know about you, but for anybody who's absolutely raveled in the fact that this season I didn't get any flu or nasty colds, yeah. I mean, it seems like going forward, we should do this. And I know 
personally, I'm never getting on a flight in flu season ever again without a mask. It feels like a win-win. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know what? And here's the thing, too. We've talked about this, too, before. Common sense. If that still exists Mm -hmm. in this world, everyone should try (laughs) to use it, right? Because there are common sense situations where, sure, a mask applies and a mask doesn't. Yeah, gosh, you're getting very controversial there, eh? <laughs> I, I might be. I might have to, like, yeah, hold back on that. Uh, no, a few weeks ago, it was still unclear whether vaccinated people could reach, could, could catch uh, COVID-19, carry it, and infect other people. Even they themselves uh, did not fall ill. What are the latest, Professor, on that? Yeah. Um, so first, the reason why this was even a question, you know, it's quite common to get the COVID virus, SARS-CoV-2, and have an asymptomatic infection, especially in younger people. But those people can still be infectious. And the problem was that the early vaccine trials weren't able to look at this. You know, they simply asked if vaccinated versus unvaccinated people had a difference in the rate at which they developed a symptomatic disease. Um, however, the data is now coming through and it's pretty strong that vaccinated people are not getting infected, not even asymptomatically. This um, It's mostly come from studies of health co-workers, you know, people who even if they're vaccinated, get tested every week anyway through their job. And the data is really showing that once you're fully vaccinated, you're highly protected from even asymptomatic infections. So kind of expected, but it's still great news to see that. Absolutely. Um, I know states such as Oregon are seeing cases rise while California right next door are are ticking up uh, slightly. Um, Actually, though ticking up a little bit, we're remaining low. I've asked Mm -hmm. different people this question, but I want to know from you, uh, Professor, why has California, you think, been doing better than most? Yeah. So first of all, you know, the spikes in Oregon seem to be occurring in the rural counties, the places where there seems to be this perfect storm of a certain high degree of vaccine hesitancy combined with a ongoing, shall we say, lower interest in compliance with mask wearing and following advice. So the common factor seems to be not taking COVID seriously, not feeling personally at risk and somehow missing the memo that you should care about other people. Um, Happily, we're not seeing anything like as much of that in California, although, you know, in certain small pockets of of the state, we could still get outbreaks in the future for reasons like that. How much do you square vaccination rates versus natural immunity on something like this? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to completely figure out. I mean, we can certainly pat ourselves on the back here in California and say, hey, great job. You know, we're doing really well. We've we've, you know, squashed this. But Definitely some of our march towards herd immunity, if you like, is because we had really high infection rates in the winter. You know, we had that devastating surge, you know, around about Christmas and in January with estimates that like a third of the state may have had COVID. And and so if you combine that with about, I think it's about 50% now of people who've had at least one shot, you know, the numbers are starting to look pretty good. But given the seriousness of COVID, I should just say that no one should plan on getting immunity due to an actual infection as opposed to a vaccine. There's, there's definitely a strong preference to, to get there through vaccination. You know, here's the part, uh, Professor, where I throw the cold bucket of water on all the positive, warm vibes that we've been feeling as Californians. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think a surge, another surge could happen here, despite how well we're doing right now? Is that uh, in the realm of possibility, you think, at this point? I, I don't. I, I think the numbers are just too much in our favor. And on the whole, California has been pretty good at Californians have been pretty good at following rules. And now we've got good surveillance and good testing capability, capabilities. So if the numbers do start to go back up, again, it's likely only to be in certain areas, uh, certain under vaccinated areas. And we can have limited, more targeted measures on those particular areas to help them sort of, you know, get back under control. Now, on vaccinations, I mentioned last week that uh, demand appears to be going down. Do we have a sense of what demographic group is most underrepresented when it comes to getting the vaccine? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Well, every generational group is going to blame the others, aren't they? Sure, Um, why not? So, you know, so first of all, the demand's going down for a couple of reasons. You know, some people do have safety concerns, although hopefully those should be going away by now. There's also still some residual logistical barriers, you know, for people who aren't tech savvy or can't take time off work to get a vaccine. And then, of course, there are people who don't feel COVID is a personal risk to them and therefore, you know, they shouldn't get vaccinated. But um, for your question, in terms of the demographics, you know, young people, uh, you know, 18 to 29s are probably the highest group of what we call the wait and sees. Um, You know, but the good news is they're pretty responsive to messaging from peer networks and are very receptive to vaccination requirements um, in order for them to travel or attend large gatherings or, or go back to school. So it's not as baked in an, ideolo- an ideology of not getting vaccinated.
On messaging, um, I wanted to ask you about this. I, I've seen different parts of the state to offer incentives, savings bonds uh, in West Virginia, uh, Chipotle gift cards in Santa Clara. What, what's your take, uh, Professor, on the ethics and the effectiveness of just basically buying people off with food? Yeah, um, you know, it, so the data says it works, um, <laughs> although, you know, with some people, um, you know, it, it actually has the opera, opposite effect. I, you know, I, I, I feel like it's a great thing to do, and it's not an unusual thing to do. You know, we have incentives about all sorts of things, including health. You know, like with some healthcare plans, you'll get a discount if you can show that you exercise. Um, so I, I think it's warranted, especially because the benefit is not just to the individual, but of course to the whole community. Now, on the other side of this, what about penalties for those who don't get vaccinated? Are we seeing that play out anywhere? Yeah, I'm okay with penalties as well. Um, again, you know, I, again, I'm just thinking about the people who may have had concerns yeah. early on, but now that so much data is coming out about safety and effectiveness, and literally hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated, and they're still saying, oh, I don't know, there's not been enough research. Yeah, I have no sympathy for that. Um, but, you know, A, I, I think of this a little bit like um, smoking, because, you know, sure, you are free to choose to smoke, but it's antisocial. There's a recognition it affects not just your health, but other people through secondhand smoke. And so there are restrictions that are placed on where you can smoke and there are financial penalties, for example, increased health premiums. So I could see vaccine penalties kind of going along um, in that same direction. Now, we just uh, got this from The New York Times, who's reporting that uh, the Food and Drug Administration authorized the use of a Pfizer COVID vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds in the U.S. Uh, Professor, what do you think? Uh, That seems like it could be a bit of a game changer. Yeah, no, that's great news because there's about 2 million 12 to 15-year-olds in California. And, you know, the data looks great. It's just as good, if not better, than the trial in adults. I think there's an astonishing 100% effectiveness that's currently being reported at the ability of the Pfizer vaccine to stop infection in 12 to 15-year-olds. I mean, just fabulous. And to me, still incredible to think about this outcome. This has all happened within a year. It's, it's an amazing vaccine. How strict should parents follow the age guidelines? So say someone's 11 and or a parent of an 11-year-old and their birthday is coming up in eight months. Should they plan for the vaccine for for a 12-year-old? Yeah. So once they turn 12, I mean, I don't know if you can kind of cheat and go in as an 11 and a half year old. You know, that would be a conversation with your pediatrician. But I also think that, you know, before the fall, we're we're definitely going to also have these vaccines available for under 12s as well. You know, all the vaccine manufacturers are really you know, working hard to get that data from kids. Um, And the good news is that if the numbers stay low in the state, even if your under 12 year old is not vaccinated, you know, the risk to that child is, is, is significantly reduced by the rest of us being vaccinated. And I would, I would assume that's the message you would give to parents who are still maybe on the fence or a little hesitant about uh, an otherwise healthy child getting, getting a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I'd really focus on the positives. And, you know, again, the data is extraordinarily good, 100% effective, no serious side effects. And your vaccinated kids get to be part of the solution, which I think is a great kind of lesson in civic behavior. And, and also, you know, your fully vaccinated kids can, can go and have sleepovers with other fully vaccinated kids, no problems attending school in the fall, go on vacation, have a normal life. And frankly, not been coming to you and saying, mom, uh, I'm told I can't play on this team because I'm not vaccinated. And then you're kind of scrambling to get a vaccine appointment. So I'd say, you know, even if it's just for the convenience aspect of it, I'd do it sooner rather than later. Well, the next negotiation would be having the sleepover at some other parent's house so you could have a night <laughs> off. Right? That, that would be the next oh, thing yes, to, indeed. to negotiate. <laughs> well, one more thing, uh, Professor. Um, as far as boosters, uh, you know, when it comes to people that have been vaccinated, we keep hearing that a booster shot could be on the horizon. First off, how do boosters work? Yes. So I, I think boosters are probably quite a familiar concept to people. Think, you know, your tetanus shot boosters, for example. And they're normally given because immunity that's developed either through a natural infection or a vaccine is kind of waning over time. So it's like a, a top up. But in addition for COVID, we're also thinking about the possibility that boosters could basically be sort of a tweaked version of the vaccine. That's a better fit to whatever the prevailing you know variants of the virus are. So that's also an opportunity. And we don't know yet if, vac- vac- if these boosters are going to be needed, but certainly the vaccine companies are very sensibly working as if they will be. And clinical trials are now taking place, giving pe- people like a third shot booster to see if they have a better or longer lasting protection. And I think worst case scenario, it's just going to be something that's on your to-do list in the fall, you know, like getting a, a flu shot. And will rolling out these boosters work more or less the same as the vaccine rollout? So elderly and vulnerable first, and then everyone slotting in behind them? 
Yeah, that would make sense. Um, but I do think that it'll be different in that there won't be anything like the urgency we, we've seen with the first round of vaccines, because most people will still be either fully or somewhat protected. So it's not going to be like a crisis. And that will allow the rollout to be sort of, you know, better planned, um, you know, and a, and a bit more organized than the you know, initial rollout had to be. That's uh, Paula Cannon, virologist with the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Paula, as always, thank you very much. Thanks, Zay. Take care. All right, so how will this era in our lives be remembered? Well, ideally, historians, journalists, they're all writing everything down and telling us about it. But eventually, there's going to be parts of this population that maybe don't get the same voice. This happened before, back in the FDR days, during the Great Depression. We're going to have a, a congressman, local congressman, talk about a plan that he wants to institute that will really look back on this time with a more equitable lens. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Did you hear what they did at the WPA? When the banks went belly up and the jobs all went away. They reinvested in America. They put the poor work at honest pay. They built Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Ami Martinez. 86 years ago, the government created the Federal Writers Project. The New Deal program employed thousands of people who needed work as writers to tell the stories of Americans whose lives were devastated by the Great Depression. The program's writers pioneered oral history as a popular form of storytelling and brought often ignored voices to the forefront while giving literary giants such as Zora Neale Hurston and Ralph Ellison their very first jobs. Now, the Federal Writers Project could make a comeback by helping a new generation of writers tell important stories about Americans as they grapple with the coronavirus pandemic. Here to tell us more about this is U.S. Congressman Ted Lieu. He's a Democrat representing Torrance and introduced the 21st Century Federal Writers Project Act last week. Congressman, welcome back to Take Two. Thank you for having me on. Now, I want to start off with a clip from a David Kippen, a writer and professor at UCLA who proposed a new federal writers project at the beginning of the pandemic last year. Here he is talking with our newscast department about what sparked the idea. And early one morning, I had an idea. And it wasn't only the pandemic, it was also that newspapers around the country are struggling, many of them smaller ones closing. I saw older people, our parents, our grandparents, many of them dying in nursing homes uh, with nobody to tell their stories to. Congressman, how did you come across this idea to revive the Federal Writers Project? And, and what made you decide to do it now? Uh, so I was shown uh, David's essay, and it made a lot of sense to me. What we had occurred during the pandemic is somewhat similar to the Great Depression in the sense that it was a very searing and traumatic event for the entire nation, and actually the entire world as well. A lot of people lost their jobs. The way of life for a lot of people changed. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity for writers to not only get employment, but also to document 
the many stories that occurred during the pandemic, one which is still ongoing. Yeah. How important is that, Congressman, to document this time? I mean, I think we're all going to remember it because we went through it, but to have the perspective of many different and diverse uh, voices, I mean, that's that's got to be very important, especially right now. America is such a large and diverse country with so many different stories. And I think our grandchildren are going to want to know, for example, how did the life of a nurse change? Or how did a grocery store clerk go through their everyday job? And what did it feel like risking their lives so that people could get groceries? Or what is it like to you know, be stuck with your kids for a whole year and a half? Or how do you, you know, deal with Zoom? <laughs> and what happened when your uncle died? I, I mean, there's so many different stories that could be captured and we need a lot of writers to do this because of how diverse uh, our nation is from small rural towns to large cities. And this is really one of the projects that worked well during the Great Depression and the New Deal. And there's no reason we shouldn't learn from history and replicate it again. Yeah, teachers, too. I mean, you could add a, a million and one different job titles to that list. So, uh, Congressman, what exactly would this bill do? The bill would authorize $60 million in grants to give to writers and newsrooms and uh, other nonprofit publications. It's estimated it'll employ uh, somewhere between 900 to 1,000 writers, journalists, historians, and so on. And it also will have the effect of taking places where there is sort of news deserts, where there's not a lot of newsrooms or journalism happening, and also give opportunities uh, for communities in those areas uh, to be able to get access to writing. It also has the effect, I think, of unifying the country. We know that in the Great Depression, uh, in the New Deal, when they did the Writers Project in 1935, it did bring the country together and people could read about how American families and other parts of their country were struggling or making it or whatever was happening. And it really gave people a sense of how uh, a very traumatic event affected the country and how people overcame it. I think a lot of folks during this pandemic were sort of siloed in their community. Uh, one was, it was physically siloed, right? So there's a lot less traveling. And what this would allow our country and families across the country to do is to see what were the experiences of other people during this pandemic, how they cope with it, how their life changed, and how they envision their future. We're talking to U.S. Congressman Ted Lieu on his bill to restart the Federal Writers Project for the 21st century. You mentioned uh, earlier news deserts, um, places where news has trouble reaching. Um, how do you think that this could help individual writers and, say, the wider publishing industry, newspapers and magazines, to maybe maybe get a spark, especially in the last few years, Congressman, where that industry has really taken a big hit? So even before the pandemic, we saw a number of press outlets shut down. Uh, we saw a lot of communities simply lose access to their community newspaper. And this program would start to fill in some of those gaps and allow a lot of these communities to then have writers who live in that community, who know about the community, to start writing stories about what that community experienced and how the community is coping with this pandemic and how the community wants to go forward. How will this bill then intentionally try to reach out to writers from underrepresented groups, specifically uh, underrepresented communities that uh, tend to not have that voice? Uh, so it's going to be a grant system, and the Biden administration uh, uh, will work on setting up criteria. And I'm sure one of the criteria is making sure that we get a diverse set of stories uh, geographically and from all parts of America. And just because, you know, considering how, how much, especially smaller newspapers or, or independent news sources in this country have, have suffered in the last few years, uh, what safeguards are in place to make sure that, say, the New York Times doesn't get uh, a big chunk of the money? Uh, that's a uh, great point. Uh, so we don't think the New York Times can get a big chunk of money. Again, the Biden administration will have discretion. Uh, but if my colleagues in Congress think that we need to put specific provisions, you know, to make sure that. Uh, large newspapers don't get a big chunk of the money. That's something I, uh, I would consider. Congressman, we live in uh, very partisan times. I, I, you know, I, I would imagine that maybe this bill wouldn't have much trouble getting passed, but in case it does, I mean, what, what do you do to try and sell this bill to, uh, to people that need to be convinced? My hope is to try to get this bill either done as a standalone bill or to insert it into the American Jobs Plan. President Biden has proposed a jobs plan that's very much needed. 
uh, to get America moving again. And this is another program that will be a great job creator for the jobs plan. Republicans have grandkids too. And so we wanna make sure that future generations know exactly what happened during this pandemic to learn about some of their stories that occurred and to make sure that we can employ a whole bunch of people that lost their jobs. And I think we can get bipartisan support for this legislation. Will that be the way you think to, to really get it through is to, to tout it as a job creator? Yes, both as a job creator and also as a way for America to capture what happened to our country for a once in a lifetime pandemic. And I think people will be very interested not only now, but also future generations to understand what our country did or didn't do during this pandemic. And if, if passed, uh, Congressman, any thoughts on how the government might go about implementing this program? I think speed would be of the essence, and I would have criteria that's easy and transparent for people to understand, but getting money out the door to get writers to start capturing these stories before memories start fading would be very important. That's U.S. Congressman Ted Lieu on his bill to restart the Federal Writers Project, which supports unemployed and underemployed writers in telling stories about Americans during the COVID era. Congressman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Sleep while you work, while you rest, while you play. Lean on your shovel to pass the time away. Taint what you do, you can job for your pay. Why is that? The WBA. All right. Last week, we were telling you about all of those warehouses out in the Inland Empire. You know how you get uh, all your Amazon purchases so quickly is because they usually stop at those warehouses and they head on out to your doorstep. Well, to get there, that means there's a lot of trucks, a lot of vehicles, a lot of emissions. We were talking about how regulators were debating a new measure possibly intended to clean all this up. Sharon McNary is going to be back with us in just a few minutes to give us an update on where that stands. It's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Don't mind the boss if he's cross when you're gay. He'll get a pink slip next month anyway. Three little letters that make... I feel in the Hispanic communities, we're just told to kind of just keep going. Don't feel. I'm LAS mental health reporter Robert Garova. Getting mental health care is often overwhelming. If you have a patient that was admitted for a serious suicide attempt, if they haven't been suicidal for 24 hours, the insurance company is like, get them hell out. My reporting helps unravel the knot by focusing on the stories of people struggling to make the mental health care system work for them. LAS, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Martinez. All right, this time last Friday, air quality regulators were debating an important new measure intended to clean up emissions from trucks and the warehouses that they visit. Here with an update on how it all turned out is KPCC's infrastructure correspondent, Sharon McNary. Sharon, welcome back. Hey there, thanks. All right, so we're talking about the South Coast Air Quality Management District, the regulators who have been working for decades to clean the air in the greater L.A. basin. And uh, this time they were taking aim at warehouses and the trucks they attract. What was their decision, Sharon? Well, the AQMD Governor Board voted to adopt this new rule. It's called the Warehouse Indirect Source Rule because it deals with the pollution that's caused by trucks coming to and from warehouses. And it's pretty far-reaching. It requires warehouses to take action to reduce the pollution created by trucks and by warehouse operations. And the actions have to be in addition to what they're already required to do under local and state laws. So basically, any warehouse over 100 square feet must choose from a menu of actions to amass a certain number of points to meet their pollution reduction goal. They can buy or encourage visits from cleaner trucks, convert diesel-powered forklifts and yard trucks to electric or cleaner fuels. They can install solar rooftop panels and electric charging stations. And if they choose to do nothing, 
then they pay a big fee. The decision was nine to four in favor of the new rule. And this was an intense meeting, very high stakes for businesses, unions, residents, and social justice watchers. About 400 people attended the Zoom meeting and many dozens testified. I would think, Sharon, clean air would be pretty universal, um, but that vote seems fairly decisive, nine to four. What were the arguments going back and forth on this? Um, The debate predictably broke down with the more conservative members who represent Orange County and Inland Empire communities complaining about the cost and potential effectiveness of the rule versus more progressive uh, Los Angeles area members arguing for the health benefits. The exchange is a good example. Um, Orange County Supervisor Lisa Bartlett said she was lobbied by a national food chain about how higher warehouse costs would be passed along to consumers. The people that are most vulnerable, that are hardest hit in our communities already with the high cost of living in Southern California, they're now looking at an increased cost for a box of cereal. And then Los Angeles County Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who's on the very progressive side, had this comeback. I think that the people who are in the neighborhoods most deeply impacted have not indicated that they're worried about the cost of their cereal. They're worried about their lungs. The AQMD staff says new rules could add about one nickel to every $10 worth of goods. All right, food fights aside, Sharon, you (laughs) mentioned that uh, some AQMD board members argued that the new warehouse rule uh, wouldn't even work. Right. Uh, A few of them said the kinds of zero emission trucks listed as potential pollution reducing choices, those trucks don't even exist widely on the market yet. And and so that is true. A few of the AQMD board members visited a warehouse in Ontario that's all electric, including a fleet of trucks. But those trucks are not the only option for warehouses or truck owners to acquire. There are near zero emission trucks on the market now that could qualify. Um, They also said that many warehouses don't even own trucks, that the burden to buy the trucks would be on businesses the warehouses don't control. So they attack the workability of of the rule. All right. So what's the significance of this decision for the logistics industry and for the community? Well, on the logistics side, it's really money. Anything from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands per year per warehouse to convert operations to be less polluting. And if they choose to do nothing, then they'd pay a fee to the AQMD. It's a complicated formula, so how much it would be is not really clear. Uh, but it could be it could amount to be what they'd spend uh, converting warehouses. And in that case, the AQMD would spend the fee on things to reduce or offset the effects of the pollution, like adding air filters to homes near the warehouses. Now, on the community side, it's health. The AQMD said the benefits will be seen by residents and workers in the form of better health, less asthma, fewer sick days, fewer premature deaths, about $3 billion in benefits over the first 10 years of the program. The typical new rule by AQMD cuts one to two tons of pollution per day. This rule is anticipated to cut about three tons per day. So that's a bunch. Mm, Okay, so the decision has been made. How do these rules get uh, rolled out and enforced? Uh, This rule will roll out over about three years, which is quicker than the original staff proposal of five years. And it'll start with the largest warehouses first. There's about 3,400 warehouses over 100,000 square feet that are affected. And the largest of those is in San Bernardino County, whose residents breathe some of the worst air in the region. That's KPCC infrastructure correspondent Sharon McNary. Sharon, thanks a lot. You're very welcome. All right, now to an update on a story that we've been following for a while here. The Los Angeles Times reported earlier today that after months of controversy with the Foreign Hollywood, that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, NBC, has said it will not air the Golden Globe ceremony next year. For more on this, we have KPCC's John Horn. John, what exactly did uh, NBC say about this? Well, NBC first kind of embraced a, uh, a statement from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association reacting to sometimes coverage about its lack of diversity and self-serving, saying it was okay with the HFPA's plans to reform, 
but a lot of people weren't happy with it. So what NBC announced today is that it's not going to broadcast the ceremony in 2022. It left open the possibility of returning the show to NBC in 2023, assuming they were able to make the reforms that they have pledged. Uh, John, remind us exactly uh, what the L.A. Times found about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Well, first of all, this is an organization that has been pilloried for decades for kind of uh, shady voting practices, accepting a lot of perks, uh, seemingly uh, supporting shows that seem to give the best gifts, weird press conferences. The L.A. Times found that among its 87 uh, voters, there were no black members and that there was a lot of self-serving, meaning that the HFPA was giving jobs to its own members that amounted to almost $2 million dollars. And finally, it was just enough. I mean, I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back because everybody has questioned the HFPA before, but this really proved that they were completely out of step. So how big of a deal is it then that NBC is dropping the telecast next year? I mean, it's a potential death knell. I mean, if you don't have a network, you don't have a show. I mean, imagine if Dodger Stadium said to the Dodgers, you can't play at our park anymore. I mean, without a network, there is no Golden Globe. Now, I guess you could assume some other some other network could come in maybe with, uh, you know, that doesn't believe as much and in, in following good rules, but it also brings in probably about $30 million to the Hollywood foreign press association. That's what NBC would pay them for the golden globes broadcast. So if it lasts more than a year, it's, I would say at the end of the Golden Globes. How much do you think uh, pressure from performers plays into this? I know Scarlett Johansson just a few days ago or last week talked about maybe taking a step back from uh, the Golden Globes, from the Hollywood Foreign Press, because of uh, of questions that she's gotten in the past from members that she deemed uh, sexist, that she thought was se- were sexist or, or maybe even bordering harassment. How much do you think that played into this final uh, thing that happened with NBC now? It did, but I think what really played a more meaningful role is Netflix, which was the big winner at this year's Golden Globes, said they weren't going to be a participant in the 2022 show or any HFPA thing going forward. Amazon filed today, Warner Media, so that's Warner Brothers, HBO, said they weren't going to participate, and hundreds of publicists representing key Hollywood talent said they weren't going to participate. So even if NBC had said, we're going to put on the show, it looked pretty likely that nobody was going to come. Yeah. What does this say more broadly about the industry, John? Well, I mean, I think in a way it's pretty good news for the Academy. I mean, the the Golden Globes has always been a joke and it has been embraced by Hollywood because it gets eyeballs and maybe it gets some awards momentum. But everybody knows it's kind of a sham. So maybe it could legitimize the Academy Awards. Maybe the Academy Awards could move up a little bit. But I think it also means that if you don't play by the rules, if you don't if you're not inclusive, if you're, if you're not diverse, if you're not honest about how you operate, you're not going to get embraced by Hollywood. I mean, I think this is part of the global reckoning that the business has had with people who are performing badly, and the HFPA has been performing badly for years. One more thing really quick, about 30 seconds, John. Can they salvage this? Can the Hollywood Foreign Press salvage this, somehow make amends and remedy, remedy, remedy this situation? Yeah. They can, and they say they're trying, but they uh, they hired a diversity uh a consultant who quit, and then their former president, Phil Burke, likened the Black Lives uh, to a terrorist hate organization. So as much as they try, it's one step forward and five steps back. That's KPCC's John Horn. John, thanks a lot. Thank you, Abe. If you missed any part of Take Two, I mean, easily the best show of the week so far. Best show of the week, top five of Take Twos this week. I'm not kidding. Just go wherever you get your podcast, download it there. We will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on Twitter at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next.